Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the History of England. Murder in the Cathedral. Now I realise that I've not been very good at recommending books recently, so this week I'm going to start with the book thing. My recommended book this week is a rather obviously titled Thomas Beckett by Frank Barlow, and there's a prize for anyone who can guess what the book's about. Frank's been my most constant companion for the last century or so, and very pleasant company he's been. Good, well-constructed history from the master, but really easy to read at the same time, a man who likes a story. So if you're really interested in Thomas and need to know all the ins and outs, this is the one for you. And as I think you know, you can buy this and other great books through my website, thehistoryofengland.com, so that Amazon know where you got the idea from. So last week we left Thomas by the side of the road in his penitent's garb, giving himself a jolly good talking to. Beckett had now become a blocker to Henry's reforms. Now Henry decided that it was time to fight dirty, no more Mr Nice Guy, the gloves are off, and all that sort of thing. But Henry kept his powder dry, waiting for just the right opportunity, because what he didn't want to do was to give Thomas the chance to parade himself again as the defender of the liberties of the church against Henry, the evil tyrant. So he needed to find the right opportunity. Thomas, meanwhile, was feeling the pressure. He tried to go and meet Henry, but Henry refused to see him. Thomas twice tried to sneak off abroad, but both times he was recognised by sailors and brought straight back. Henry could have had him at this for trying to leave the country without permission. But to use this as an excuse would have allowed Beckett to argue that he had a right to visit the Pope, a right that Henry was trying to put a stop to through his constitutions. But in September, Henry found his excuse, when Thomas failed to answer a summons in the matter of a land dispute rather than a church affair, which was something of a technical offence, actually, that would normally have been resolved really easily, I've just forgotten. But technically, it was serious enough to allow the court to condemn Thomas to lose all of his movable goods and property. Now everyone in the court knew that what was going on here. This was just victimisation pure and simple. The barons and the bishops of the court squabbled over who should pronounce the sentence and in the end Henry had to order the Bishop of Winchester to do the deed. Henry knew he was legally in the wrong but he stood on his dignity which was by and large the thing that he stood on best. It is improper, he said, that an Archbishop of Canterbury should be tried in the court of the king. He was furious with his bishops for taking part, so he sent an appeal to the Pope against his sentence. But as it happens, this was also a bad move. Thomas needed to realise that his bishops just didn't have a choice. They were obligated to take part in the King's court. And appealing to the Pope without the consent of the King opened him up to charges of treason. And that really was no laughing matter. Lots of really nasty things happen if you get accused of treason. It also didn't make Beckett the bishop's friend. And Beckett really, really needed friends, because he was most certainly now in need. And now, Henry turned up the amp to eleven. 
He started throwing accusations at Thomas about the misuse of funds when he'd been a Chancellor, issuing a, a continuous stream of questions and accusations. And then he followed it all up with a summons. Thomas was to come to Northampton on October the 12th, where the King and his court were to put him on trial to answer to all these extra accusations. In his defence, Thomas went straight for the big gesture. He arrived in the courtyard of Northampton Castle, and he took the Episcopal cross from his crossbearer, and he marched solemnly towards the council chamber, holding it high in front of him. Now even his bishops could see this was a daft piece of provocation at theatre. Gilbert Folio even tried to grab the cross from him, and an unseemly little tussle took place. If the king were to brandish his sword, said Folio, as you now brandish yours, what hope could there be for making peace between you? Throughout the whole affair, Thomas and the king didn't meet. In fact, the whole thing was an exercise in melodrama. Thomas sat in the chamber downstairs, clasping his cross resolutely. Henry, meanwhile, had caught wind of the appeal to the Pope, so a deputation from him challenged Thomas to retract that appeal or suffer the consequences. The poor old bishops ran around like a gaggle of frightened geese, under hideous pressure on the one hand from the king to take part in the court, as they were obliged to do, and on the other hand from Thomas to stand by him in the church. They were themselves therefore absolutely furious with Thomas, because by ordering them to refrain from the court he was putting them in just a simply impossible position. And also, look, he'd proved his flakiness when last they'd stood by him, so what were they going to expect from him now? So they all got together, and in the end they came to a deal with King Henry. In return for not being forced by Henry to take part at court, they would write to the Pope and they'd ask him to depose Thomas as Archbishop. Now there's a thing. If he wasn't in the poo before, Thomas was now officially there. Henry licked his lips and now got the rest of his council, the secular lords, to pronounce judgment on Thomas. When the judgment was taken down to Thomas, he refused to hear, saying, Think you to judge me? You have no right to do so. Which is awfully reminiscent of another obstinate and inflexible man who would stand in Westminster Hall some 500 years later. Thomas grasped his silver cross firmly and pushed himself out of the chamber. Thomas's barons, meanwhile, made their loyalties absolutely clear, shouting perjurer and traitor as he passed. There may even have been the odd boo or hiss, but the chroniclers don't record that. To give him his due, Thomas gave as good as he got, looking pointedly at particular lords and shouting whoremonger and things like that at them. But he knew he was in real trouble. Fortunately for Thomas, he still had one friend, a chap called Herbert of Bosham. Herbert managed to find a key to the castle, and the two of them grabbed a horse and they both galloped away before they could be stopped, Herbert hanging on for dear life behind the galloping archbishop. For weeks the archbishop crept round the English countryside, escaping capture until at last, in November, he was able to get across the channel and land in Flanders, and soon he'd reached the relative safety of a Cistercian Abbey southeast of Paris. And now it was a propaganda war. Both Thomas and Henry settled into a struggle for the hearts and minds of Christendom, Many of Thomas's bishops were seriously pained and troubled about their divided loyalties, but there were enough who were cleared that by running away again, Thomas had burned his boats. Gilbert was obviously one, and another was the Archbishop of York. To be completely fair, by the way, it's worth noting that both of these men could well have had other motives. Archbishops of York, for example, had been whining for decades that they shouldn't be subordinate to Canterbury, and this could have been their chance to persuade the king of their case. Gilbert, meanwhile, could possibly have been an embittered loser who had been passed over for the big job. 
On the other hand, they could both have been genuinely disgusted with Thomas. Who knows what the truth is, but bear in mind, both men could have had less than wholly pure motivations. For his part, Henry cracked down on any supporters in England, banishing anyone who spoke up for him and sending his relatives into exile. It is pretty clearly a mean, small-minded act of tyranny, and I retract my earlier retraction. Thomas, meanwhile, had his own sources of support. Henry had written to his fellow king, Louis of France, reminding him of how much they loved each other, and that he assumed that as a fellow king and dear friend, he trusted that Louis would treat Thomas with due severity and send him immediately back to England to face justice. So Louis found him a really nice little place in a Cistercian abbey at Bortigny in Chablis, where Thomas could have the time and the space he needed to give Henry as much grief as humanly possible. And this Thomas immediately set about doing. He sat in the middle of a network of spies and informers who brought him news of home. He wrote to the bishops at home, encouraging his supporters, pouring invective on those who dissed him. In this tight little monastic world, the very embodiment of the separation between the spiritual and the secular lives, surrounded by supporters, verily I say unto you that Thomas's sense of self-righteousness grew and hardened. The Pope was a key figure in all of this. Only he could get rid of Thomas as Archbishop of Canterbury. As soon as Thomas fled, Henry sent a deputation legging it over to the Papal Curia, led by the Archbishop of York. Now Pope Alexander was in a difficult position. He was unable to return to Italy, and he needed Henry's support against the anti-Pope. Thomas, meanwhile, panted in a couple of days later and put on a fine display, sobbing and handing over his archiepiscopal ring to Alexander and offering to resign. Now there was a camp amongst the cardinals that was all for accepting Thomas's kind offer. But Alexander knew he couldn't desert Thomas, so the king's deputation was sent away empty-handed. Over the next couple of years, the struggle went on with old surges in activity. I said last week that I put the dispute in context of the rest of Henry's life, and I confess I'm not really doing that. But at this time, for example, Henry is carrying out his greater size of Clarendon, part of his great reforms of justice. Thomas is a major irritant, but no more than that at this stage. And while he's out of the way, life goes on happily enough, with the bishops really perfectly happy in general to support Henry. But in 1165, Henry had another crack at dislodging Thomas through the Pope. He ostentatiously entered into negotiations with Alexander's enemy in the Holy Roman Empire, essentially threatening to change sides. Now Alexander was a canny old bird, and he refused to be stampeded. And in fact, in Easter 1165, he confirmed Thomas as the papal legate to England. However, ever the subtle diplomat, he urged Thomas to play it cool and to act in a statesmanlike way to negotiate his way back into his position. These were just wasted words. Thomas now went into the PLS system, i.e. polite, nasty solicitor. He wrote three letters to the king demanding restitution, and they got progressively grumpier. This is shown by the way he started the letters off. So the first letter said, His most revered Lord King Henry. The second letter was addressed to his lord and friend, King Henry. And then the third said, These are the words of the Lord of Canterbury to the King of the English. Thomas then stood at the great church of Vesalie in Burgundy, and he unsheathed the sword of the church, excommunicating a prior of Henry's servants and threatening that Henry himself would be next. So, so much for the diplomatic approach then. Henry struck back at Alexander's weak spot, again threatening to support the antipope. And this time Alexander realised that he had to do something. He held Henry off with vague promises, 
but at the same time he started putting severe pressure on Thomas. And meanwhile the political situation had indeed moved somewhat in Henry's favour. So let's talk about that a bit, with my promises that I will make it relevant to our Thomas and that I won't let Thomas drag on to another episode, Okay. Okay, so in 1164, Henry seemed to have loads of time to play with, and he could afford to let Thomas go on to his heart's content. But by 1167, there was a low-level, continuously draining series of disputes that Henry was having to deal with. He and Louis were fighting for influence in the Auvergne, an area on the edge of the Angevin Empire. An invasion by Henry to displace a usurper who had seized control was met by a raid by Louis into the Vexin to draw Henry away from the Auvergne. In 1166, Henry had invaded Brittany and deposed the Count Conan. Although Henry's son Geoffrey was only seven years old, he betrothed him to Constance of Brittany, Conan's daughter. The Bretons struggled hard to restore their independence, and in 1167, 1168 and 1173, Henry was forced to invade. Slowly, slowly, Brittany was forced into the mould of the Angevin Empire. And meanwhile, Aquitaine was also causing continual problems. The background to this was a continuous resistance to the attempt by Henry to impose order and enforce the powers of the Duke. So in 1167, the Counts of La Marche and Angoulême threatened to transfer their allegiance to the King of France. Now then, in 1168, you may remember that Guy of Lusignan ambushed Eleanor and Patrick of Salisbury, and although Eleanor escaped, the Earl Patrick was killed, and one of his humble household knights was captured, namely one William the Marshal. Louis must have begun to get seriously interested in the possibilities. He had a couple of counts thinking about moving over. The Bretons were begging him to carry on fighting Henry to support their efforts. The Prince of Gwyneth and the King of Scotland had also sent envoys pledging their loyalty and asking for his help. Could this be the beginning of the end for the Angevin Empire, torn apart by centrifugal forces? Or does the word centrifugal not exist anymore? I'm sure my brother told me that once. Anyway, aside with the point, Henry turned up the lights, put the Angevin truck up a gear, put on the afterburners, whatever particular cliché suits. He marched on the Lusignan, captured their castle and devastated their lands. He spread fire and destruction throughout Brittany. He devastated the lands of Louis' vassals on the borders of Normandy, setting fire to more than 40 villages owned by the Counts of Pontieu. Louis' response was definitely C-, with one feeble attack soon blown off by Henry. So Louis sued for peace, and persuaded Henry to meet him at Montmirail in Maine about how they could get on a bit better together. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now the way I've presented it sounds very much as though Louis had been forced to the negotiating table, and that's true, but actually Henry had good reasons for making peace as well. He realised that Louis had good reason for wanting the dismemberment of his empire, and that while there was this great big empire sitting on his doorstep, Louis would always be looking for a way to destabilise him and bring him down. And meanwhile, Louis had feudal law on his side. Whatever happens, he would always be the overlord and Henry his vassal. It's reminiscent of the Earl of Manchester's quote from the Civil War when he said, If we defeat the king 99 times, he will still be king. 
Now Cromwell had little time for such fatalism, and I've no doubt Henry would have been equally contemptuous, but in the end, this is actually the thing that brings the Angevin Empire down. So Henry needed to try and convince Louis that there was a future he could live with, and his answer was to split up his empire between the family. He needed to provide for his family anyway, with what with all those sons, so the family firm was going to be split up amongst the family members. Henry, as the eldest, was to get the plum job, King of England, Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou. Geoffrey would have Brittany and Richard would have Aquitaine. There was nothing for John, hence the name John Lackland, but then he was only two, so the Lord would no doubt provide at some point. The idea was not just to give each of his sons their inheritance, it was to show Louis that he wouldn't be confronted by this big Angevin empire forever, and that for the moment he could just get on with Henry and wait for him to die. It's also very clear that Henry had no interest in creating one coherent empire. The fact that the empire survived his death was pure accident. Henry had not only decided to make peace with Louis, he now also needed Thomas. He was desperate to crown his eldest son Henry as his joint King of England. This was a good old tradition that we've seen before. Henry I, for example, had invested his son William as Duke of Normandy before the tragedy of the White Ship. But he had a problem. The English tradition was that the job needed to be done by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So now Thomas had a lever. And so they all met at Montmirail in 1169. Louis and Henry came to an amicable arrangement and sealed the deal with another marriage. Louis's eldest daughter, Marguerite, was already married to the younger Henry, of course, and now his second daughter, Alice, was betrothed to Richard. And you have no idea how much trouble that particular one is going to cause. Louis felt much happier and much more relaxed about the big gorilla sitting on his doorstep, comfortable that it was soon to become a group of manageable monkeys, as it were. So he was prepared to help Henry with his problems, interceding on his behalf with the rebels of Brittany and Aquitaine, and of course with Thomas. It all looked so good. The negotiating team reported that Becket was ready to make his peace with Henry, and the clergy and the laity and the two kings all met up. Becket came in, and everyone held their breath, and Becket knelt at Henry's feet, and Henry raised him up, and Becket said, On the whole matter which is between us, Lord King, I throw myself on your mercy and on your pleasure, here in the presence of our Lord, the King of France, and of the archbishops, princes, and others who stand around us. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief, and prepared to celebrate. And then Becket said, Saving the honour of my God. Oh, please. Henry went potty. He denounced Becket as proud, vain and ungrateful. He pointed out to Louis that, in Henry's words, Observe, if you please, my lord, that whatever his lordship of Canterbury disapproves, he will say is contrary to God's honour, and so he will always have the advantage of me. Everyone now is sick to death of Thomas and his stiff-necked refusal to be reasonable, including the French. But Thomas calmly sat in the midst of the fury and refused to back down. I ask you to remember that despite the odd explosion, Henry's reputation was as a reasonable, courteous man who won everyone's admiration for his demeanour. Listening to his relationship with Thomas, you would think otherwise, but it's actually more of a sign of the lens Thomas drove everyone to. And it has to be said that after Montmirail, Henry also blots his copybook as far as Louis is concerned, descending again on Brittany and Aquitaine with force, despite the deal struck at Montmirail. And so the Barney continued through 1169. Henry tried to get the English bishops to confirm a decree, saying that all the clergy should return home from foreign parts, but the bishops refused to sign it. Becket pronounced a new series of excommunications, but Alexander didn't support him. But in the background, the papal representatives worked away and managed to get them together at Montmartre. 
By now, both parties seemed happy to stop the argument about the constitutions of Clarendon and the customs of England thing. It had now become a face-saving exercise. But the meeting at Montmartre also crashed and burned, this time because Thomas insisted on the kiss of peace, and Henry refused. This sounds like the height of pettiness, doesn't it? Arguing about a pick on the cheek. But the kiss of peace from the king in those days was no mean thing, a sign of royal favour. Henry had vowed never to give Thomas the touch of the royal lips, and claimed he didn't want to break his oath. Henry then decided he'd had enough of all this, and in 1170 he just went ahead with the coronation of his son and used the Archbishop of York instead. This was clearly in contravention of the customs of England. It made Alexander and Thomas really cross. Again. But Henry coupled his impatience with a charm offensive, and signalled that he was prepared to drop many of his demands. And as a result, in a grassy meadow outside a village called Fretaval on the banks of the Loire, Henry and Thomas met for a third time. The meeting went on for hours. Henry apparently behaved as though nothing had ever happened between them. There was no talk of constitutions. There was no requirements for oaths. Henry agreed to make all Thomas's enemies his enemies. Beckett threw himself at Henry's feet in relief, and they left the field together, all smiles. Henry held up Thomas at the edge of the field, and he generously pardoned all of Thomas's household. Henry was absolutely determined to make this work now, but yet again there was in reality absolutely zip feeling of genuine collaboration in Thomas's proud, vain, stiff-necked and short-sighted skull. So Henry asked Thomas to also pardon his household. But Thomas refused point-blank. It's not the same thing, he said. Henry let it go, but his household noticed it. One of his knights remarked, If he chooses to love me, I love him back. If he chooses to hate me, I'll hate him. Henry had reached the end of his tether. He decided to just trust that Thomas would play ball and behave in a spirit of reconciliation when he got home, in which he was sadly, sadly mistaken. Thomas set foot in England in December 1170. His reception was not warm. Henry sent three leading officials to accompany him, and on the one hand that was a good thing, since there was a very grumpy crowd waiting for Thomas at the harbour. But on the other hand, it was not a good thing, in the sense that Henry's representatives were almost as contemptuous as the Archbishop, as the crowd were, and bent his ear all the way back to Canterbury. Events now moved quickly to their famous conclusion. Henry may have wanted things to be happy and gay again, but they just simply weren't. Thomas behaved like a fanatic. As soon as Canterbury came into sight, he got off his horse and walked barefoot to the cathedral, surrounded by crowds of his devotees and supporters who had gathered there to wait for him. Henry's supporters weren't happy to be reconciled either. When Thomas tried to repossess his castle at Saltwood, all he received from the Castellan was the archiepiscopal packhorse returned with its tail chopped off. Henry the Younger, clearly still at this stage on his father's side, refused to see Thomas at Windsor. On Christmas Day 1170, the meaning of Thomas's refusal to pardon Henry's followers became clear. He excommunicated the Archbishop of York and Gilbert Folio in the most provocative act he could think of. I thought it might be fun to hear a version of the anathema, similar to the words Thomas would have used. So here goes. Wherefore, in the name of God, the all-powerful Father, Son and Holy Ghost of blessed Peter, Prince of the Apostles and of all the saints, in virtue of the power which have been given us of the binding and losing in heaven and on earth, we deprive, insert name, and all his accomplices and all his abettors of the communion of the body and blood of our Lord, we separate him from the society of all Christians, 
We exclude him from the bosom of our Holy Mother the Church in heaven and on earth. We declare him excommunicated and anathemized, and we judge him condemned to eternal fire with Satan and his angels and all the reprobate. So long as he will not burst the fetters of the demon, do penance and satisfy the church, we deliver him to Satan to mortify his body, that his soul may be saved on the day of judgment. Strong stuff. You might like to see the anathema acted out, in which case you could do worse than watch Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole hamming their way through in the most superb fashion. The Burton anathema is available on YouTube also. I put a link on the website. News reached Henry at Bayer, where the English bishops were pouring poison into his ears anyway, and Henry lost it. What miserable drones and traitors I have I nourished and brought up in my household, who allow their lord to be treated in this shameful contempt by a low-born cleric. And I think we know what happens next, don't we? Four knights take the hint. Reginald Fitzurse, William de Tracy, William Le Bret and Hugh de Morville set sail for England. On the 29th of December, they burst into the Archbishop's Palace with their platoon of twelve knights, where the Archbishop was having supper. They cut up rough, and demanded that Thomas go to Windsor to account for his actions before the young king. Henry, of course, was having none of it. He refused to be treated like a criminal and calmly went into the cathedral. He made no attempt at all to avoid confrontation. He didn't bolt the door into the church, for example. He made no attempt to negotiate as per normal. You get the very strong impression that these minor household knights were completely incapable of dealing with the situation in any way apart from violence. In their minds, they'd walk in, cow the archbishops with their threat, take him to Windsor where he'd grovel on their return home heroes. Thomas Beckett wasn't having any of that sort of stuff. There'd be no compromise. Why should he break the habit of a lifetime? In the church, the knights tried to manhandle Thomas out. But Thomas Beckett was strong enough to resist. He yelled insults at the knights, calling them pimps. It was too much for the knights. Nothing was going as planned. One of them hacked at Thomas, cutting through the arm of his attendant and into the crown of Beckett's head. At this point, Thomas is supposed to have resided to the ground, saying, For the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. Personally, I doubt it. I think if you had the crown of your head sliced off, you have little time to do anything more than say ouch and then crash to the floor, but I could be wrong. The knights kept at it, just to make absolutely sure. One of them hacked the head right off, and another smeared the episcopal brains across the cathedral floor. So there it is, the faux pas to end all faux pas. The hair shirt was immediately discovered by the monks preparing his body for burial. People began gathering his blood and linking it to miracles. Beckett was elevated from being a stiff-necked, inflexible irritant into a saint. And it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that murder and death was a good career move for him. He became a martyr. The truth about the way he went about things, the amount he actually achieved, the value or otherwise of his arguments became completely irrelevant. Meanwhile, Henry was genuinely horrified at what had happened, a reaction that was echoed throughout Europe. The Archbishop of Saint proclaimed an interdict on all of Henry's continental possessions. King Louis and his bishops demanded vengeance from the Pope. The Pope refused to speak to an Englishman and threatened interdict, but in the end simply forbade Henry to go into a church until a papal legate had found out just how sorry he was. In due time, Henry convinced the Pope's representatives that he really was very, very sorry and that he'd never meant Thomas to be killed. His punishment was really pretty mild. He had to commit to a crusade and do penance. The latter meant that in 1174, with King Louis probably gloating by his side, Henry had to go on pilgrimage to Canterbury. He had to walk the last few miles barefoot in a hair shirt. 
At the tomb he fell on his face and was given five lashes by each of the attending bishops. I don't know about you, but if I'd been one of the bishops there to whip my king, I don't think I'd have put my back into it. But this is all rather stunning, isn't it? Just imagine, this is David Cameron or Barack Obama wearing a hair shirt and being whipped by Rowan Williams. Quite a thought. And what about the political aftermath? People do vary quite wildly about how much Thomas achieved. There's no doubt that there were some impacts. The right of the clergy to be tried in separate courts survives until the 19th century, the benefit of the clergy as it becomes known. The church continued to be able to appeal directly to the popes. But it's got to be said that this was a right that Henry had really no chance of stopping anyway. But on all the other points of the constitutions of Clarendon, Henry won the day. The constitutions were amended in three points and then became the basis for church-state relations. The speed with which Alexander and Henry resolved all the issues is as clear an indication as any of Thomas's inflexibility. And in practical terms, the king's influence on appointments remains as strong as ever. So that's the story of Henry and Thomas a Becket. What are we to make of it all? Obviously, contemporaries thought it was deeply significant, and I suppose you could see the whole thing as a struggle of high-minded principle against brutal tyranny, but as far as I can see, it was more like the irresistible force and the immovable object, and I think you'd struggle to put a cigarette paper between the two of them. Thomas, at very best, makes an awful fuss to arrive at a settlement that could have been negotiated much, much earlier, and indeed ended up being negotiated anyway with Alexander. And at worst... He espoused the supremacy of church over state that was utterly potty and never had any chance of success. Of Henry, also you'd have to say that despite his reputation for being a man who generally remained calm and made logical, considered decisions, Thomas quite clearly gets under his skin, up his nose and wriggles about, and Henry's methods started out as hideously aggressive. But at least, to do him credit, somehow he manages to get a grip on his emotions before the end and try to do the right thing at least. It's extremely unlikely that he sent the four knights to kill Thomas, though it's true that none of the four were ever brought to justice for the murder. In a funny kind of way, but despite being so famous, the whole affair's impact is pretty limited, and the most interesting thing is probably that story of a friendship turned to hatred. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you very much, as ever, for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week for more about the irresistible force, our friend Henry. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 